Welcome back to this weekly special pandemic update on the Medical Republic podcast. It's Wednesday, May 20. I'm Francine Crimmins and I'm joined by my fellow journo and co-host of the show, Felicity. Hi, Felicity. Hi, Francine. It's great to be back. Um, And it seems a little quieter now in the COVID-19 news environment with lots of lockdown restrictions ending in Australia. I know I had my first coffee sitting down at a restaurant this morning. It was very exciting. Um, Felt really weird and kind of dangerous. And today we've got our resident COVID-19 blogger back, Bianca Nogrady. She's going to give us a bit of an update on what's been happening over the last week. Bianca, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's very lovely to be back and I applaud your coffee in a cafe. So let's get straight into today's update. Uh, If anyone spent any time on Twitter or I guess the Twitterverse yesterday, you would have seen uh, one of our favourite White House trolls, uh, sorry, I mean the President of the United States, published a four-page accusatory letter um, and it's one that he addressed to the WHO Director General, Dr Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Um, and it basically accused him of having an inappropriate bias towards China, nothing that you haven't heard before, which basically impacted his slow and at least according to the president's response to COVID-19. Uh, but he's now kind of been called out for the Lancet for having his argument rest on a false claim. Bianca, you've been following the Lancet versus Trump debate. Can you fill us in? Yeah, I do love this. Like, I love that this august um, and you know very restrained medical journal has really come out swinging um, politically, which is a pretty big step for them to do. And, and I gather from just reading around the reactions to this that it's a highly unusual step for a medical journal like The Lancet to take. Um, but this actually started earlier in the week. So The Lancet actually published a pretty heavy-hitting editorial that basically asked US residents or US voters not to re-elect Trump in November. So their beef with Trump is largely about how he and his administration have basically systematically worked to minimise, undermine and underfund what was once a very highly respected um, health organisation, namely the, um, the Centers for Disease Control. So, um, you know, they cited the fact that the... Um, the Trump administration removed CDC staff from China before the pandemic happened and had those staff been there during the pandemic or at least when it was beginning, um, they might have actually been able to highlight that this was likely to be an issue for for the US and the world. Um, They also had, um, so Nancy Masonia, who's the director of the National Centre for Immunisation and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC, she used to be present at the White House briefings on COVID-19. She's now been removed from that role Um, And the Trump administration is also constantly questioning things like the CDC's mortality figures, their guidelines on management of COVID-19. And, I mean, the editorial, obviously the CDC's come in for some criticism of its own as well, and and, um, the uh, Lancet editorial pointed out that they'd made some fairly critical um, stuff-ups early in the pandemic, for example, deciding not to go with the WHO's um, genetic testing kits, but instead to develop their own, which then delayed the rollout of those. And then they also had some issues with the um, test reagents being faulty early on. So really, it set back testing in the US drastically. It was a huge issue. And they kept it very centralised. They weren't allowing um, regional testing. They weren't allowing hospitals to do any kind of testing. So it was it was a major issue. But anyway, so basically at the end of this, they, they said Americans must put a president in the White House um, who will understand that public health should not be guided by partisan politics, which is basically, please don't vote for Trump. 
So that was the Lancet a couple of days ago. Um, and then, as uh, Frankie's mentioned, uh, Trump has set, published this four-page letter to the, the uh, WHO Director General, and he outlined this lengthy list of grievances with WHO's um, response to the pandemic and really hinges on this idea that WHO has it, its ties to China are far too close and that this has undermined the organisation's response to COVID-19. But one of the points that he made was he, he accused WHO of consistently ignoring reports of the virus spreading in Wuhan as far back as early December and mentioned that there were reports published in The Lancet at the time. Now, I mean, this uh, this letter from Trump was surprisingly articulate, so it's clearly not written by him. But uh, The Lancet came out and again out of its corner and said that statement is factually incorrect and pointed out that it did not, in fact, publish any reports of the virus in December. And the very first publications about the uh, about COVID-19 were actually in late January. And the first of those was from a team of researchers and clinicians in China reporting on these um, the Chinese outbreak. So uh, they, they said that these, uh, they also criticised his letter by saying that the allegations that he'd levelled against the WHO were very serious and they were damaging to efforts to strengthen international cooperation, um, particularly, which is, you know, kind of a bad thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. But I just, I, I love that, you know, it's so British. It was very, um, it was very restrained. It was very just, you are wrong. Uh, which I do, I do quite like. Um, so I'm waiting to see what comes out of Trump next because he really doesn't like being talked back to, and he doesn't like being shown up for being wrong. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if this degenerates into a wonderful slanging match between uh, Trump and the Lancet. But my money's on the Lancet, absolutely. And what I loved is that someone rightfully asked if the president was already taking uh, hydroxychloroquine after earlier this week. Um, he said that he would do that, um, I guess, in his own uh, trial of the drug as a cure. Um, and someone said, you know, that drug has known side effects of paranoia. So, you know, that got more responses and laughs than the original post of the president's letter. Yeah, I mean, he would probably be taking paranoia to a whole other level. But, oh, I mean, there's, and I keep posting these on the blog, actually. It's this link to this brilliant US comedian called Sarah Cooper, who's um, the woman who does these lip syncing videos on TikTok um, to Donald Trump's uh, proclamations. And she, the latest one, which we posted yesterday evening, has her lip syncing to him talking about um, giving hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir and uh, God knows what else to the US public. And it's just brilliant. It, when you hear his words coming out of the mouth of, you know, someone who is clearly not Trump, it makes you focus on what he's actually saying and you realise the absolute like jaw-dropping lunacy of what he says. It, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. Anyway, made my jaw drop, but it shouldn't have done. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that he's a lunatic. So COVID-19 numbers are still quite low in Australia, but what do we know about how common COVID-19 is in the general population um, at large, so in the world? Um, and are, do we know anything about people who aren't necessarily at high risk or have obvious symptoms? Has anyone done some random testing to just get a sense of whether this virus is still spreading in a more invisible way? Yeah, it's a great question. And this really is one of the biggest questions is what is the true seroprevalence of COVID-19 in 
a variety of different populations because it will be very different on the you know the, the zero prevalence amongst different age groups, different ethnicities, different countries, different cities um, will be different. But it's a really important one because if we knew exactly how many people were infected, that would tell us how many people are asymptomatic, which would um, would be kind of important to know. Um, so there's actually been two studies this week that have tried to answer this question. Um, and what they've tried to do is rather than do what we're doing at the moment, which is test people who have symptoms, this is really trying to test everybody. It's it's a kind of, you know, a community-based survey um, that that doesn't select for or against people with symptoms, or at least what's, that's what it's trying to do. So the first one, uh, which was a study published in JAMA, uh, and it was antibody testing of 865 individuals who all lived within a 24-kilometre radius of a testing site. So they actually sent, um, they invited a random population, a randomly, randomly selected population of uh, 1,952 people, but only about half of them responded to the invitation. So there is a bit of self-selection already going on there, and they do say this likely meant that the people who did um, decide to take up the offer of testing might have been people who felt that they had symptoms. So it's already going to self-select for a population with a slightly higher prevalence or a slightly higher risk of there being COVID-19. But anyway, so they tested these um 865 individuals, and they found that 4% tested positive to having antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. Um, and um, the when they looked at, because they also asked about symptoms, about 13% of the cohort reported fever and cough, 9% reported fever with shortness of breath, um, and 6% reported loss of smell or taste. So 4% in that population which is still pretty high. Um, I don't know what the actual testing figures are for that area. This was in California, I think. Um, so another interesting study, which is a lot more randomised, um, was actually published as uh, it was on the preprint server MedArchive, so it's not peer-reviewed. But they looked at, they did uh, testing of blood donors. So um, throughout the entire COVID-19 pandemic, obviously people are still donating blood, which is brilliant. And those who donate blood are asked to, um, you know, obviously if they have symptoms, not to donate blood. It's, as we know, you only donate it if you're healthy. Um, so from late February in Milan, they basically uh, randomly selected 20 individuals per day who were turning up to donate blood. So overall, from late February till late April, they had about 789 healthy blood donors who were free of COVID-19 symptoms and had had no contact with infected individuals in the prior two weeks. So that's about as kind of um, avoiding uh, known COVID-19 suspects as much as possible. And what was fascinating, so the baseline, so in the first two weeks of sampling, which was very early on in the outbreak in this area, really early on, they still found positive serology in 4.6%. So even at that incredibly early stage of the pandemic in Italy, when there were relatively few cases, they still found that 4.6% of this particular population who are asymptomatic and had no known contacts um, were still testing positive to, um, to SARS-CoV uh, serology or antibodies. And then when they compared that the last three weeks of the study, which was when things were really cranking, um, although I think they probably dropped off slightly by that point, but what they noticed was that the um, serology, the prevalence had actually increased to 7.1%. So, so it's showing obviously significant increase, but given the, you know, the difference between those two time periods in terms of what we'd actually know from infection rates, you'd expect in a way the first of all, the sampling in the first two weeks would have been a much lower prevalence and the sampling in the last three weeks would have been much higher. 
But what was really staggering was that they worked out that these estimates translated to, in the, um, the early April testing, translated to about 231,000 undiagnosed cases in Milan, which meant that only one in 20 individuals with the virus were actually diagnosed. So that, I think, is a staggering figure. If this is if this is an accurate reflection of what was going on, and I can't imagine how it wouldn't be because, I mean, you, they were talking about the sensitivity of these tests, and I think the sensitivity was pretty high. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of questions still around antibody testing, but, I mean, this isn't point-of-care testing. This is laboratory testing, which would be much more accurate. But the idea that we're only, you know, in somewhere like Milan, which was really in the thick of their pandemic, was only picking up one in 20 cases to my mind, just suggests that there is a massive reservoir of um, asymptomatic or undiagnosed cases in the community. So it's kind of alarming. And I wonder, you know, it would be great to see someone like the Australian Red Cross if they were doing sort of similar testing or any blood donation facilities, if they can retrospectively test donations or test donors would be such useful information. Yeah, well, it's like we've just got the tip of the iceberg coming through testing centres and it's the waves still out there. Um, and is there any Australian data around uh, how many COVID-19 cases are asymptomatic? Yeah, so there is some Australian data that's just come out. It was actually um, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this wasn't uh, based on uh, kind of study data, but they were uh, looking at, so they had five studies, two from China, two from the US and one from Italy. So overall that was about... Um, they were looking actually. They were looking specifically at close contacts of confirmed cases. So, overall, there was about nine thousand two hundred close contacts of more than seven hundred and forty confirmed cases, and they found here that the overall rate of asymptomatic presentations was around sixteen percent. So, um, and it, and it did range. So it ranged from six percent to forty one percent. Um, but the, the overall rate was um, 16%. And what was also interesting about this is that they, they did then split those up into um, the prevalence of asymptomatic cases in non-aged care settings, so everything other than aged care, compared to uh, this prevalence in long-term aged care. And interesting, I, it took me a while to get my head around this, but the asymptomatic rate is much higher outside of aged care, whereas um, so they found that this asymptomatic rate in, I guess, what we call the general community, depending on where these studies were done, uh, was 19%, whereas um, in long-term aged care, the rate of asymptomatic presentations was around 8%. And I, I took me a while to work it out, but I guess that's because in long-term aged care, they're much more likely to actually get sick and to get sicker. So you are going to see uh, lower rates of asymptomatic presentation and higher rates of symptomatic presentation. Um, and the, the one reassuring note in this particular study was that there were two studies that looked at the possible community spread from asymptomatic cases, and they did find that the rate was much lower um, from than from symptomatic cases. So, and I think there was there was some other data, and I can't remember where I saw it, but there was some other data which also suggested that asymptomatic cases are much less likely to, to, um, to spread the virus than symptomatic. So that's, you know, a small a small piece of, um, of comfort, I guess. And just to make sense of that, that 16% uh, figure, is that of people who have COVID-19, 16% are asymptomatic? Yes. Yeah, so this was actually the people who had tested positive. So they found overall there were 413 of these close contacts tested positive and 65 of those were asymptomatic. 
So this was definitely people who were positive, had tested positive for the virus. So they, they were actively looking for people who were, um, so they were kind of uh, doing surveillance of close contacts, basically. And so that identified those who were positive, and then they were able to identify which of those were asymptomatic. So there were really, the sample is people who had come into contact with the virus. So from that data, can we figure out what percentage of the Australian population is likely to be asymptomatic but infected with COVID-19, or is it not not possible? Well, I I mean, I guess this would have been, the the selection criteria for this population was that they had, they were close contacts of known cases. So you're already selecting for a population that has a higher risk of testing positive. Um, If you were to, so you couldn't necessarily extrapolate this to the general um, Australian population because most Australians won't have come into contact with someone who's tested positive. So I would imagine that um, in terms of just the kind of asymptomatic and the positive rate would be lower in Australia, but it's difficult to know because we we aren't really testing that. But generally speaking, if you're going to do a study like this in Australia, I mean, ideally, what you do is you just take a randomly selected sample of the population that, you know, some of whom may have come into contact, some of whom may not have come into contact. Um, You just test everybody, you know, and then you see who's symptomatic, who's not symptomatic. Um, But you'd have to do a population-based study, whereas this is kind of population-based, but it's selecting for people who were known to have had contact with someone with the virus. So they're already considered to be... I guess, relatively high risk of contracting it. Yeah, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to just do a random sample across Australia because you've got pockets where there are outbreaks and then pockets where there's nothing. So you wouldn't kind of necessarily get a good estimate of um, how many asymptomatic infections are going around unless, you know, you actually targeted a few areas where there are hot spots of COVID-19 and a few areas where there are not. But I guess they could, they've could they got enough data to kind of go out there and, and look look at that now, but I don't know if anyone's doing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why I think maybe blood donors would be a, an interesting population to study. Although, again, the selection that's going on there is you're selecting for healthy people because you'd automatically exclude anyone with any kind of symptoms of pretty much anything because if you donate blood, you're supposed to be, you know, as fit as an ox and as healthy as anything. So you would be selecting a pretty healthy population. Um, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a good way of doing this where something you you want as randomly selected population as possible. And I mean, really, the, the kind of the electoral role is probably the closest thing to a, the kind of random sampling, you know, however they conduct um, political polling, whatever that sample is, they should sample them. Mm, yeah, but even if you did a random sample, it wouldn't necessarily be representative because you might accidentally miss all the hotspot areas and then you'd think, oh, it's actually quite low. But then if you'd covered a few hotspot areas, you'd, it would tick your numbers up really high. Yeah. So yeah. there's not a lot they can really do. I know. Well, this <laughs> is the problem, isn't it? When you start trying to get into how do you do these sort of observational or population-based sampling studies. I mean, this is why places like, I think it's Sweden, or it's probably some of the Scandinavian countries seem to do this so well. You know, they have these massive data registries for the entire population. And so they, you know, all of the data is is available. And um, and you can just, it's it's such an extraordinary wealth of data. And, it's, you know, if we had something like that for, the, for, for COVID-19 for testing, but I, I don't know how that would work. Um, yeah, I don't know. Good question. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of very smart epidemiologists and public health folks who are going to be trying to answer these questions and probably way more uh, equipped and qualified to answer them than me. 
if we do skip across to Sweden for a second, um, they have taken a more relaxed approach. They may have great data collection, um, but they've really taken the easy Scandinavian approach uh, where they basically have just asked their citizens nicely, um, you know, can you all stay home? It would be really great um, rather than the stay at home orders that we've seen in Australia and the UK um, and Italy, um, less so in the US. How are they going with that? Not good <laughs> is the short answer. Um, yeah, this uh, reliance and this Sweden is a real case study in why you shouldn't try and rely on herd immunity because uh, there's um, analysis that suggested it may have shortened life expectancy of uh, men in Sweden by three years and women by two years, um, which is a pretty big dip for, a, you know, an otherwise fairly robust and healthy country that doesn't have a lot else going on in terms of uh, that would impact the health of its citizens. Um, so this was another preprint server paper, so not peer reviewed, but the researchers looked at the age and sex specific death rates for Sweden um, in 2020 and then across the previous five years. And they found that from the beginning of April, which I guess is really when things started to, you know, the people who got sick in March started to die, um, the death rates in 2020 started to exceed those of, of previous years. So it really diverged uh, upwards. Um, and it was a very clear age-related effect on mortality. So if you were aged 60 to 79, um, death rates were 25% higher than the median average death rates uh, that had been seen in the previous five years. Um, while individuals who are aged 85 to 99, um, their death rates were 50% to 70% higher, which is massive. Um, and obviously men fared, uh, fared worse than women. Um, but the, the commenter just really pointed out that, you know, a control strategy that made recommendations and left it up to the individuals with this aim of building up herd immunity, um, you can see the cost of that fairly starkly with this study. So, Frankie, I think you were listening to a really interesting live briefing today from the Australian Science Media Centre about bad modelling and um, and how that's really messed things up. What happened with that? Yeah, I dropped into a press briefing this morning uh, and Professor Mary Louise Laws, she's an epidemiologist from New South Wales uh, University, and she was joined by Professor Peter Collingen, uh, who's from Canberra Hospital, he's a microbiologist. They were basically uh, just presenting the view that the models that have been presented are uh, projecting possible infection and death, especially in the in the um, Australia and New Zealand regions, have really uh, screwed up, basically. So if we rewind a little bit, uh, there was something crazy like 30,000 projected uh, infections for New Zealand. Um, I remember that only six weeks ago people were projecting that there could be something in the tens of thousands of deaths in Australia um, and now, you know, we're coming out of isolation and none of that happened. Um, I think one interesting thing that uh, McClaws pointed out is that modelling is something that shouldn't really be used uh, in this way for infectious disease. We haven't run it in the past. It wasn't used for SARS or Ebola. Um, and one of the main reasons is that none of this modelling can take into account human behaviour. So if we rewind eight weeks, all of those crazy uh, projections that we were seeing, um, they really were not accounting for the fact that anyone would try and stop the infection, uh, which just seems crazy because a normal human behaviour would be that, you know, you would put in public health approaches, which we did, um, and obviously that's why we haven't seen those 10,000 projected deaths in Australia. 
So I, I just thought that that was kind of an interesting counterpoint, especially when we're still using how much modelling um, at the moment. One thing that they did point out, though, is that modelling is great, mainly for working out uh, things like how many beds you'll need in emergency or how many masks you need to import as a nation to deal with some of these crises. Um, yeah, I just I thought it was a good counterpoint, considering that we're all still using these models uh, very openly, including uh, in our own reporting. Yeah, the, the challenge of modelling, it's that idea of the, that you, and I've seen this, there was a ridiculous tweet that somebody made in the US, probably a conservative idiot, saying something to the effect that um, countries that have lockdowns, um, their models have been incorrect because fewer people have died. It's a big mess <laughs> that was basically pointing out the, the, the or illustrating the problem with models is that if, um, if we did everything wrong, those models would have been correct. We would track them. Uh, but because we did so much right, the models have been, um, I guess, usurped by, yeah, real-life behaviour, which, you know, it's they're, they're a victim of their own success in a way. Exactly. And one uh, example of that is if we look back at when Australia decided to close its borders, uh, I mean, in hindsight, thank God we did because that's probably accounting for how low our cases are now but at the time a lot of epidemiologists were saying that they should have been closed weeks earlier and I think that one of the things there is that the Australian government was relying on uh, modelling at the time uh, which was showing the risk of importing the virus from Asian countries but that also didn't take into account any behaviour um, and at the time you know December we had Christmas so we know for a fact that a lot of you know middle to upper class um, people in China travel um, and visit family in the US and uh, all throughout Europe and in Australia, as we know. Uh, we have students traveling back and forth. And then uh, that was followed by uh, Chinese Lunar New Year. So, also a lot of travel involved in that. So, I think that that was just one of the examples where the modeling did not take into account the actual patterns of travel at that time. But thank God, I mean, we didn't have to really continue the debate on when the borders were closed because it seemed to work regardless here. And in other news, exercise classes, um, apparently they're death traps. Uh, I mean, that's the tabloid headline you'd run uh, about some of these studies that are coming out about COVID-19 outbreaks around the world, which are associated with fitness classes. Bianca, I know you'd probably go with a slightly less shocking, more responsible headline. Um, but can you tell us a bit about this research? I object to that idea that I write non-shocking and responsible <laughs> headlines. I try and write shocking ones and clearly I'm failing. Um, yes, I, there's, there's every now and then there'll be these kind of case studies that'll pop up in the, uh, in the literature about particular outbreaks around the world. And they're so fascinating because they're very, you know, it's a detailed kind of forensic examination of how one person goes on to infect a whole lot of other people. There was a, one very early on, uh, which we reported on the blog about a Chinese restaurant, which actually showed the layout of the restaurant and where all of their various cases were sitting. And, and it, it was sort of talking about the role that um, air conditioning and, and fans played in actually spreading these droplets further than they would otherwise spread. But this one is a, um, it's a, a South Korean study of 120 cases of COVID-19 that could all be traced back to a single fitness dance class training workshop. 
So this training workshop, there were eight instructors, there were 27 instructors, dance fitness instructors who attended this training workshop in uh, about mid-February, which was described as four hours of intensing, intensive sorry, training. So a lot of heavy breathing, a lot of sweating. Um, and of those 27 um, instructors, eight later tested positive for COVID-19, but not before uh, quite a number of them, and I don't know exactly how many, who had very mild or no symptoms, then conducted a series of classes over the following week in their respective institutions um, and sports facilities, which then resulted in a further 112 infections. Um, and around half of those were uh, were in participants in those classes, and the rest of them were amongst family and friends and colleagues. So that's quite a staggering. So 120 cases that all came from one single training workshop class. Um, the second report that was really interesting, um, partly because it lent itself to a fantastic headline, or what I think was a fantastic headline anyway. Uh, so this was a report in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report that the CDC publishes. And it was a cluster of 16 probable and confirmed COVID-19 cases, including three deaths, that were traced to a single infected person who attended a funeral in Chicago, followed by a birthday party three days later. So this person had traveled interstate, they had mild respiratory symptoms, but then they went to this um, funeral, which was not someone who died of COVID-19. Uh, and that funeral, obviously, there was a dinner the night before for family, for the mourners. Um, from that particular encounter, four people later contracted COVID-19, one of whom died. So three days later, this same infected person, still obviously oblivious to the fact that they were carrying COVID-19 or they were infected with COVID-19, um, three days later, they went to a birthday party and managed to infect another seven people, two of whom died. Um, and furthermore, three of those infected birthday party attendees then attended church service six days later, which resulted in another infection in a healthcare professional. Um, so you're probably wondering what the headline was. And I figured, well, because it starts with a funeral and there are three more funerals and a birthday party, then it became four funerals and a birthday party as opposed to four weddings and a funeral. The classic film starring Hugh Grant, which probably most of us have forgotten by now. Wow, those kinds of case studies are really quite important right now. I mean, I know everyone's sort of thinking about heading back to work and I've heard a lot of debate around people uh, using elevators and whether there should be two people in an elevator or four people in an elevator. And I've heard some um, office buildings in the city, in Sydney at least, are looking at an hour-long traffic jam just to try and get everyone up in the elevators. So it's going to be interesting when we think about the scenarios of how infection travels and how we need to reorganise our lives so that we can stop these kinds of infections taking off. Yeah, absolutely. And it does make, you know, I think seeing these case studies and hearing about them makes me much more aware of my social activities and you know I do think I remember early on in the pandemic you know if the the advice was act as if you have the disease act as if you could spread this to other people and I feel like we we kind of forgot that because so many people didn't get infected but maybe we do need to re kind of revisit that notion that as we do come out of lockdown and as we do start to resume some of those activities that involve us being in close proximity to other people, we do still need to keep that notion that we could still be infected, we could spread this to other people and to try and, um, you know, adapt our behaviour accordingly, which is pretty difficult to do in a lift though. You're absolutely right, Bianca, and we also know that it's harder to change a country's behaviour if they perhaps haven't seen the devastating effects of the virus uh, to the level that other countries have seen as well. 
Um, but thank you so much for sharing all those updates with us. Uh, that's it for this week. But we can catch uh, you all at the same time next week. And Bianca, how can people reach you in the meantime to chat about the live blog? Sure. If you want to get in touch, if you've got any tips or comments or feedback, um, you can email me at Bianca at BiancaNogrady.com and the link's on the live blog page. Yes, thanks, Bianca, for joining us. It's always such a relief to hear your little synopses on um you know this podcast it's such such a good way to stay up to date and if you'd like to hear more from the medical republic you can subscribe on itunes or spotify or any other podcatcher of your choice just search for the medical republic and if you'd like to contact me just flick me an email at felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au thanks so much for listening